RP3 is ready to step his game up and grab the mic for the latest edition of the Rap Game Podcast. Here is Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. For some of us, sports journalism becomes a passion later in life, something that we kind of come to unexpectedly. That was the case for yours truly, as I didn't ever think about becoming a longtime sports journalist, yet 20-plus years later, here I am. For others, they grow up around it, and they become immensely successful in their own right, and they become known as one of the best beat reporter columnists in all of the industry. And that's what our next guest is. He has covered it all, high schools, college, pros. He's one of the best ones out there, and he's got a new book out, 100 Things LSU Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, which he co-wrote with Ross Dellinger. It's our good friend, the one and only Ron Higgins. Ron, good day to you, sir. How you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. So we'll get kind of dive into the genesis of the book and how it came to be and everything like that. But uh, the main thing is I know the book is going to be coming out this week. So how does it feel to have a book out there going on the bookshelves and being available to purchase and uh, to be a published author? That's always exciting. Uh, uh, this is my fifth or sixth book, but I think it probably is the, uh, the, the most well-timed coming off of uh, a national championship year, and people you know, loving LSU football like they've never loved it before, and in um, uh, available on different platforms. Which, for you know, as as you progress progress through the years, there's there's more platforms you can put your book on, and it's easier to buy. And so this is uh, this is probably one that will probably sell uh, the best out of the ones I've had, and they've been various things from. Um, the early days of Memphis's NBA basketball team to uh, uh, a biography I wrote on the richest cotton merchant in the world who uh, lives in Memphis. Uh, had a, a guide on, on uh, uh, for A&M and Missouri fans about the SEC when they came in. So but I, I really like this one. Uh, and then I got a chance to run with the loss. Uh, you know, this is the first time I've written with any uh, – I've written with somebody – who wasn't even born when I started the business. So it's good. <laughs> well, let's start there, brother. When, uh, for those who don't know, when did you start in the business? Well, uh, I started actually, uh, I had my first article in a newspaper without my name on it uh, when I was about eight years old. Uh, my dad was Ace Higgins was sports information director at LSU. Uh, in the summer, he'd work at the morning outfit and work on their high school preseason section, which, you know, it's a massive thing they put every August. And they would call people in to help work. And I'd go up there with him. So I learned how to uh, look over his shoulder and learn how to see how he constructed stories, look over his shoulders of other sports writers. Uh, so uh, that happened this summer. So um, I, I was eight years old yet, and, and the, the sports editor one night, Bud Montez, said, listen, uh, they're bringing some American Legion baseball scores and information in. Do you think you can write me uh, about six or seven paragraphs? I said, yeah. So I did. You were uh, eight, Ron. Eight. Yeah. So <laughs> that's how it started. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I typed with two fingers and a, a thumb to shift, which I still do. 
So do I, bud. And, so do I. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I, th- I was about, about 13 or 14 when I went out and covered a game for the byline. Uh, uh, for the advocate tickets, still, uh, their prep editor asked me uh, if I could cover a game. And I said, yeah. He goes, get a byline. I said, well, yeah. He goes, uh, uh, do you think your mother can drive you there and pick you up? Because I, I have a driver's license. Uh, I said, yeah. So, our, uh, yeah, I covered, uh, uh, first thing I covered was Buck and uh, Baker High School Jamboree. Never forget it because I walked in the locker room after the game, uh, because it, it, it was a Baker. I was walking in the home locker room and I was looking for the coach and I see him. Before I say anything, he looks at me and he goes, We need some more talent. And I, I said, what, what are you saying? He goes, We need some more talent. I said, And I'm kind of stupid. He goes, you're, you're my manager, aren't you? I said, No. He said, who are you? I said, I'm Ron, I'm Ron Higgins of the morning after I'm, I'm covering a game. You're a sports writer. I said, yeah. He goes, no, you're not. I said, yeah, I'm a sports writer. He said, well, ask me a question then. I said, okay. You know, in the first half of this game, y'all, y'all ran the ball really well. You were kind of dominating. The second half, you came out and threw. And, and it kind of changed, kind of hurt momentum. But we, we just kind of work on that because you had a lead or what? He goes, you're a sports writer. I said, I told you all was. Uh, <laughs> So that was my uh, my first introduction to, uh, I guess, covering stuff and going out and doing it. Uh, I'll end up, you know, for years I covered high school. Uh, it's an invaluable tool for any journalist, sports writer who wants to, uh, you know, learn how to write on deadline and write under the worst conditions possible. Uh, you know, when you cover high schools, a lot of times they don't have game programs. You have to get to the game early and ask the manager of each team, if they have a roster that you can copy it, because back then you didn't have phones, you could take pictures of it. You copy the roster, and then you keep your own stats. Uh, and then you have to find somewhere to, uh, you know, uh, file a story from. This is before they really they had, uh, you know, computers. And so you would write your story, you have to the paper, write your story, or write it and then, and then dictate it in over the phone. Uh, and I think it's a, uh, a lot of, Journalists, kids today miss out on that who are journalists because uh, they don't ever, they, they can get a job without doing that. They, there's so many dot coms now that they're hire, hiring people so cheap that they hire kids right out of, out of, out of journalism school who have never had to do that with no experience. And a lot of times when the pressure gets tough, they don't really know how to handle it because they've never had to be in those situations before. Uh, it's like what? like watching somebody work at McDonald's and when, when the electricity goes out, all of a sudden they have to make change. It's like you watch them and you can see like they, it's like the wheels are turning but they just okay, that cost 85 cents, I gave you a dollar so you give me 15 cents back. I mean, honest to God, you see kids today, I'm not, I'm not saying they're stupid, I'm just saying that they're not used to, they've always had technology to help them. Uh, and, and so yeah, I thought covering high school for years was invaluable. It really was. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, uh, so by the time I got to college, the time I, the time I got to college, and I went to a junior college in Texas for two years and played basketball and came back to, uh, LSU and walked on, made down to the final cut on their 1970, I think that 78 team that went to a, 70, uh, I know that because I played Magic Johnson in the semifinals. I would have been on that team. Uh, they kept another guy over me, and the guy was good. I, I, 
I agree with that choice. I didn't agree with some people to have their team. But uh, by the time I got to LSU, I, I, I decided that I was going to major in broadcast journalism because that would give me a venue to do either one. Because I was pretty comfortable with the, with the way I wrote. Uh, I liked the – you kind of develop a style by reading other people and what you like to do. And I kind of felt I knew how to how I wanted to write. And so I wanted to broadcast journalism. That would be great in that. Ron, what was it like growing up around a major college program like you did with your dad and his role and just being exposed to all the great athletes and everything like that? It was, uh, it was awesome. I mean, really. I mean, when you're sitting there and, uh, you know, you're you're watching Pete Maverick play every home game, uh, you know, you get to talk to him. Uh, you know, you're, you know, it's, it's – uh, I got to do stuff other kids didn't get to do. I'll give you an example. During football season, uh, my dad's office was in Tiger Stadium. Uh, and he had a little back door out of his office that went directly into the stadium. You walk up, this was on the, uh, it was on the east, east side, uh, northeast, it was a northeast end zone, yeah, side, and his office was there. And, 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 and you could walk out this back door. And in 20 steps, you were on the field. Uh, and so every Sunday, my older brother and I, Johnny, uh, uh, we'd go there with my dad because what he would do, he would, he would write the release for the next uh, upcoming week on the next team they're playing. And then he would, you know, basically run them off an old mimeograph copier. And then we had to stuff envelopes and, and, and send them out. That's what you did. I mean, that's how old, and this was like the 1960s. Uh, so we went up the, uh, we got the back door, and what we do for the next in, until he was finished, like the next three hours. First, we got there, and we kicked field goals. We, we kicked field goals, and, and and we were careful because when you kick field goals back then, behind uh, uh, the dress rails, his dressing is now. They had they had uh, they had hedges up against the fence, and what they do every Sunday was they they wash the game jerseys from the night before, and they'd lay them on the hedges to dry. So you had to kick field goals and be careful that you didn't land the ball on, on, on the hedges on the jerseys. <laughs> so we do that. So we do that for a while, and then and then we decided, okay, we're thirsty. Let's go find us a Coke machine that's still open. But so what we do is we find a golf cart in the stadium that still had the, the key in it, and we drive up and down the ramps looking for a, a concession stand that still had the Coke hooked up. And uh, that's what we do. It's like it's like our little, our little Disney World. And we, we, and we find a Coke stand and we drank Coke with people who were sick. Uh, and then, and then we kind of, you know, scavenge hunt people through the stands. That's how I got to know all the different liquor brands in the world by going through LSU stands after games. Uh, I got to know Jack Daniels and Jim Beam and all those guys. Uh, uh, and then afterwards, afterwards we would, uh, you know, come back in and stuff the envelopes. And then, and then my dad would take us out and give us driving lessons in the Tiger Stadium parking lot. That's how, that's how I learned to drive, on the Tiger Stadium parking lot. He put me behind the wheel, and we go up and down parking lots. So that's where I learned how to drive. So LSU is my education in a lot of ways. So, and, you know, I mean, uh, I learned how much coke you can drink before you got sick. I learned the uh, names of liquor uh, bottles. And I learned how to drive, all at Tiger Stadium. A very unique childhood, to say the least, brother. Tell me a little bit uh, about your daddy. Uh, he's he's revered as one of the the best to ever do it. 
there's the Ace Higgins Award that's named after him uh, for SIDs. Um, just just tell us about the bond that you had with your dad. Well, it's just like I, I guess we had a bond because, I, uh, you know, I, I guess from the time I was six, seven years old, I wanted to be a sports writer, but I kind of knew what I wanted to do. Uh, and just from watching him, what he did, uh, the way he interacted with people, well-liked, uh, uh, he was really good at his job. It was back in a time where there, was, uh, there wasn't a, an adverse relationship between schools and their SIDs and the media. Uh, he always thought it was his job to help LSU tell its story, so he'd help the media any way he could. Uh, never, it wasn't about selling a brand like they do now, or uh, you know, don't talk to this guy, don't talk to that. And his, I mean, and his whole thing was, how can I help you? Make sure you do a better, a good story. What can I do to help you? Uh, which today is like so far from what happens, it's unbelievable. But. Uh, and uh, he was well loved. And, and I, and during games, he wouldn't sit down. He paced the press box. I, I, I could sit there in the stands and watch him pace back and forth. He always never sat down. I was uh, pacing, a little nervous. I was asking people to get you know, to help him. Uh, and and uh, of course, he had some had some funny moments. Uh, uh, I guess, in, in fact, I was just writing something about this. Uh, I think it was back in the fifties and. He went on a basketball trip with the LSU basketball team, and the coach, Harry Ravenhorst, got sick right before the game. They had nobody else to coach the team, so they, they stuck him on the bench as the head coach. Uh, and he told me, he goes, I retired 1-0. Uh, I, said, I said, so what did you mean? What, was your, what did you do in the game? What was your coaching style? He goes, basically, the players would tell me when they were tired and tell me to call a timeout, so I did. <laughs> so that was his, uh, that was the coaching deal. And, and another and. He was also the, the, the public address announcer for LSU basketball games and for baseball games and for uh, their, their track meets. Uh, and, and one night, uh, one night at a, at a basketball game, the Lag Center, he's down there and, and they're watching the game. All of a sudden, we see the smoke coming up from underneath the scorers' table where right where he sat, and you see people passing drinks down in front. They killed the fire. The smoke coming up, and I said, what happened? I think he goes, well, I was smoking a cigarette. I, kind of, I thought it was out. I threw it down there. It caught some of those mimeograph papers on fire, and so it started a fire. <laughs> we, had, we had a fire at, at midcourt one time. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't a great judge of athletic town. He came home, I guess uh, it was in the fall of 66. That's right. And he goes, I'm not our new basketball coach today. I said, yeah, really? He goes, yeah, it has press marriage. He goes, it said he, it said he had a son that is a real good player. Named Pete, I said, "What do you think he is?" He goes, "I don't know, man. I, I met the kid. He's skinny. He's skinny. I don't think anything." Uh, but there you go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and uh, but he, he loved his job. He loved LSU. Uh, died way too early. Died when he was forty-five. Uh, had a heart attack. Uh, you know, for a guy at that time, those that you know smoke a lot, didn't drink a lot, but smoked a lot. Uh, you know, but he gave everything he had to his job. Uh, like I said, I always, you know, loved LSU, loved what he did, and loved helping the media. So uh, it's uh, still an honor that the LSWA gives an award uh, to uh, an SID student scholarship every year in his name. It still, uh, still means quite a lot to me and my family. And uh, I guess it was about 
Well, 10 years ago or less, maybe less than that, that uh, the college, you know, Sports Major Records of America uh, finally put him in their Hall of Fame. They, they'd kind of forgotten about him. And with, with, help, with the help of some of his former SIDs he worked with over the years at different places, uh, he got elected on, on the old-timers ballot. That was, that was a great day when I was able to go up there uh, and accept it for him to give a speech. And, and uh, my mother was still living. She was very happy about it. Ron, appreciate you sharing that, brother. I also want to touch on something. You've brought it up before on the air um, with I, and it's about when you first worked at Tiger Rag, when you were a student at LSU. And I, I know you wrote a, this terrific column when you took over as the editor of the Bible of LSU Sports, and you, you talked about how you and Edo were on campus at the same time, and now here you are and you're taking over Tiger Rag while he's the head coach. What were some of the things that you learned and maybe some of your favorite memories that time back then, you know, working, writing, and, you know, kind of running Tiger Rag? Well, you know, I, I was a, I was a staff writer. We had a publisher with Steve Myers and, and the editor was Steve Townsend. I was, a, I was a lone staff writer, which means I wrote everything. <laughs> uh, there you go. And, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, a good education. I mean, I, I could always write until the cows came home. That was no problem. Uh, it, but, you know, just uh, I guess getting past the football and basketball and writing about other things, you know, uh, you know, baseball uh, around uh, around then, it wasn't big yet. Baseball for years at LSU was horrible. I mean, you know, we always tell the story that, you know, uh, LSU fired a baseball coach one time, and he didn't know until he looked at the one ads in the morning advocate one Sunday. There was an ad in there for the head baseball coach. Uh, that's the truth. <laughs> Jack LeMade got fired like that. Paul, Paul Diesel ran an ad in the morning advocate, and, and so somehow got in there too early. And so LeMade sees this thing, and he goes, what the hell is this? I mean, and, and he goes to Diesel and goes, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I shouldn't have ran, but, you know, you're fired. Uh, <laughs> My bad. My bad on that. Yeah, my, my bad. Do, uh, do you need any help packing up your office? <laughs> yeah, it's just the, the wacky things over the years of the LSU sports. You kind of got used to them. Uh, but, you know, I always thought about, you know, when I, I was working for Tiger Rag when this happened, but, uh, uh, but the initial story I wrote on it went to, uh, was in the Morning Advocate, and it was the first first place award I've ever won in, in, in Louisiana Sports Writers. Uh, first, first place uh, yeah, everyone is, is a professional writer and won a few cents in. But uh, it was a Bo Ryan, day Bo Ryan died. And uh, I, I had an interview set up that morning that he died uh, with their defensive coordinator, uh, Greg Williams. Uh, and uh, and Back then, you know, I, I didn't listen to the radio. I watched TV, so I got up that morning and went over to the football office, and I walked in, and people were crying. And I'm like, what's going on? And they said, Bo's plane went down last night. And then Lenny, I said, I said, went down. I mean, he, 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 he said, Bo's plane went down the ocean. I said, in, in the Gulf? I go, no, the Atlantic Ocean. I said, what? And, uh, you know, of course, we found out that Bo's line was in, was in Shreveport, uh, recruiting with Greg Williams, Shreveport area, and then the end of the night, uh, Greg put Bo on the plane because Greg's going to drive back Baton Rouge, and uh, the pilot 
Ben, uh, it was Ben Scotter and, and Bo. Apparently, just had a loss of oxygen, and both of them just kind of, you know, passed out and died. And the, the plane flew off course and died in the Atlantic Ocean and died. I mean, they, 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 both of them died. Uh, they're already dead. Uh, so when I walked in the football office, I didn't know what was happening. And I, I said, I'm sorry, I was, I was here to see Ray. He goes, well, he's here. I said, uh, I said really? He goes, he goes yes. Yeah. They said, he, he, he put Bo on the plane in Shreveport. Oh, oh, my goodness. Uh, I, so I, there was no other coach in there. So I walked in there, and he saw me. We, we talked before. I said, listen, I, I, I heard what happened. I said, I could, you know, I, 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 you know, if you want me to go and come back, I don't know. Maybe that's fine. He goes, no, 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 come in, come in. I guess he just wanted to talk. Uh, he just started talking about it. And, I, you, know, I, you know, I didn't have to hardly ask any questions. I didn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't, once I found out that, he, you know, he, you don't know how to handle that when you're like 22, 23 years old, that situation, you know, right away. Uh, and, and, and so I just let him talk and, and I went and wrote a story in first place. And, and the funny thing is, and not funny, but it's like, uh, when the Bo Ryan, uh, documentary came out in, uh, I guess it was several years ago, uh, and I was in it, uh, but I, I tracked down Greg Williams by phone. First time we talked since that day. Uh, he was retired living in Raleigh, North Carolina, where he came from with Bo at North Carolina State. But we talked, and just kind of, you know, he was telling me some things I didn't know about, about that day that he, that he remembered. Uh, but it, yeah, that, that was strange. That was like my, my, my biggest thing happened with Tiger Rag, my, my year there. Uh, and so, had a good year there. And it's like after basketball season in March, and the publisher, Steve Myers, calls me in and goes up. Listen, uh, you've done a great job. I said, thanks. He goes, uh, we're, we're about to let you go. I said, why? He goes, well, we've run out of money to pay you. I said, wow. <laughs> I goes, he goes, uh, overspent my promotional budget. I said, you know, he goes, I bought too many flippy flyers. I said, flippy flyers? What are those? He goes, oh, this is, this is a flippy flyer. He holds up, and there's this round piece of cloth shaped like a frisbee with a tiger rag logo on it. He goes, yeah, these are flippy flyers. You throw them and they fly. I spent too much money on it, so I can't pay anymore. So, oh, great. So I go home to my wife and say, I just got, I got let go because they're flippy flyers. Uh, and about a month later, I was lucky. Uh, the Shreveport Times hired me uh, full-time as a uh, as a, a writer and columnist, I mean, to, to become a columnist almost right off is, is pretty, a pretty big deal. But they kind of respected my experience, and they knew me for years. Uh, and I worked there for about a, about a, uh, a year and a half, about two years. And then I, I switched, switched to the afternoon paper, the Shreveport Journal, because I loved the way they they covered stuff and what they were able to write. And uh, I was with them probably about a Eight or nine months when the advocate called me back, and I, and uh, and the advocate back then, maybe not too much now. Uh, uh, it was owned by the Manships, and they were heavily invested in LSU, and so you really couldn't write anything negative about LSU. Uh, and when, it's funny when I, when I was hired, uh, one of the writers on the staff was named Joe Plants, and Joe Plants was the only guy on the staff who was willing to tell the truth about LSU. Of course, so, so they never really put Joe on LSU stuff. So when LSU, you know, Joe would, if they played bad, Joe would say they played bad. Uh, 
In fact, Joe Joe was so disliked by LSU that uh, a guy who I I worked for at LSU, I was student assistant, who I love Paul Manassas. Paul Manassas disliked Joe Planet so much that he'd sent him a Christmas Christmas card with an, it was an empty envelope. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much Mr. Manassas liked Joe Planet. So when I was hired by the advocate, Joe Planet told me today, get there, he goes, he goes, you won't last a year here. I said, okay. He goes, I'll bet you twenty dollars. I said, okay. So, uh, I, uh, I was working alongside John Adams, who's now in Knoxville, and he was a columnist, and I was a beat writer. And John left, I became a columnist. And I got called in by their editor before football season and said, and 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 this was, the LSU was not having a good. I mean, they, they, they hadn't been good. And he says, uh, now you can't write anything, you know. Try not writing negative LSU. I said, but what they what they know, what they play bad. I think it's well, just you know, try to try to temper it. I said, but that's you know, to me, it's like against my whole ethics completely. And I said, so basically, I, I mean, I kind of lie. He said, but well, just temper it. I said, well, I can't do that. He goes, well, if you don't want to do that, I'll, I'll, you know, you know, I'll just take off doing columns. I'll put you on doing high schools or or, or whatever. I said, I said, okay. I said, well, you know what? You do that, and I'll get a new job, and, and, and I'll be out here in two weeks. So I'll have a new job. He goes, okay. Well, then you're in high school. He says, fine. I'll be out here in two weeks. And so, I uh, best break I ever had because before I was hired by uh, the, the Commercial Appeal in Memphis, which was a uh, a regional paper. I mean, they covered everything. They had contacted me about a job, uh, and I went back to them and, and interviewed them. They said, sure, we'd love to have you. And so. But instead of getting my two weeks notice, I gave three weeks notice because at the end of that third week, it was exactly one year to the day I was hired. So you could win so the I, bet. <laughs> to win the bet. So my last day of work, I looked at the phone and said, Joe, my last day. I said, in one year. He looked at me and he goes, son of a... And he reaches in his pocket, hands me a $20 bill, uh, and, and, and I exited the, 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 the advocate. The best thing ever happened to me was working in Memphis. I worked most of my next 30 years there. Uh, I left there briefly for a year and a half to go work in Mobile, and and that was fun. And my wife wanted to go back to Memphis, and Memphis Memphis rehired me. They never replaced me when I left. So when I walked back in, uh, I turned my computer. There's like 2,000 emails on there. I looked at them and said, you never turned this off? You know, there's like a year and a half worth of emails here. Uh uh, but Memphis was great. I got to, I got to cover. If I've been in Baton Rouge, I've been, I've been stuck covering LSU my entire life, and which for some people is not a bad thing. But I wanted a little bit more than that. And in Memphis, I was able to cover the entire SEC. I was able to cover uh, more than I think like twenty five or more Final Fours. I was able to cover Super Bowls. I was able to cover the NBA Finals, NBA All-Star Games. I was able, I was able to cover the NBA basketball team. Uh, I was able to cover three Olympics, uh, I mean, three or four Olympics, all summer games. Uh, Seoul, Barcelona, Atlanta, and I think it was Australia. Uh, I, I, I got to do things that, that I wouldn't have gotten to do here. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, and so, you know, I thought I'd be in Memphis for the rest of my life until one day Jim Kleinpeter called me. Who worked for the Times Picayune and said we create an LSU opening, uh, a columnist to cover LSU. Uh, 
this was like nine, uh, this was 2013, okay, like 2013 as well. And, uh, would you be interested? I said, yeah, you know, I was stunned because I always wanted to work with Thomas McCune because it, uh, Pete Finney worked there and Pete Finney to me was like the standard sports writers in Louisiana. And I always wanted to work with the same paper Pete Finney worked at. Uh, he's retired, but he's doing a column once a week. Uh, and so I, I got hired there and I remember the first column I wrote. It was on the front page of the sports page, and I was at the, on the top of the fold. At the bottom was a Pete Finney column. And I'm like, I was happy, but I was sad at the same time. I'm like, no, no, you can't put Pete Finney below me. Pete Finney should be above me. He should be above the fold. Uh, I should be the one on the bottom. That's Pete Finney. Uh, I worked with Tyler McHugh until they ran out of money to pay me, uh, which was all right. In August 2018, right before the start of the, uh, the season, and since then it's kind of been we'd work in Jackson, Mississippi for 90 days, and they ran out of money too. Everybody knows we're out of money. I don't, I don't charge that much. <laughs> uh, went to work for Tiger Details, uh, Scout.com website, uh, Rivals.com, sorry, Rivals, uh, and I enjoyed that. And then last November they they called me here and asked me. Uh, you know, while being and, and, and coming here and working with Tiger Rag, and uh, I thought, wow, that's ironic. Talk about a full circle. Uh, and I've and I've enjoyed it uh, because I've never been in charge of a magazine before, the magazine and a website, and now during the season, a newspaper. Uh, and I really enjoy it. Of course, uh, I, I guess the best part for this for me is I have all this knowledge about the SEC, not just LSU, and so uh, I can take that and apply it. Uh, again, I don't, uh, you know, people want to stay here all their lives and work and cover LSU. I'm sure that, that's good for them. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's guys who've done that who are tremendous writers. Uh, Scooter Hobbs, like Charles, who's been laid off, I guess, furloughed for two weeks as, as we speak, which is incredible to me. Nobody should ever furlough, furlough Scooter for anything. Uh, uh, you know, it's just the fact that, uh, I've been lucky. You know, I've worked hard, but I've been lucky. I've gotten good breaks and people have known me, but I'm glad I went away and picked up all that knowledge covering the SEC because uh, it's really helped me in my career. But again, I don't, anybody who covers LSU the whole time, I mean, that's good for them too. Uh, especially for a guy like Scooter. I've got to tell you the Scooter Hob story. This is, this is a true Scooter Hob story. Everyone has a great Scooter Hobbs story, so I can't wait to hear yours. Oh, sorry. This is my, okay. When I went to work at LSU Sports Formation as a student assistant, uh, Scooter had just left. So they, they gave me Scooter's desk. Okay? So my first day there, of course, Scooter would be cleaning his desk down. I go my first day there. Okay? I'd open up the top drawer on the right side of the desk, and there is a wadded up sports coat, wadded up in it, thrown in there. <laughs> I open the second drawer, and there's a pair of tennis shoes with mud on them crushed together, like crusted, like this one big, one big shoe. I'm like, great. Open the bottom drawer. There's a salad. A salad. A, like salad? a salad? An old salad. That was Skinner's desk. A wild-up sports coat, muddy shoes, crusted together, and a salad. And that, and uh, the legend of Scooter Hobbs at LSU in sports formation is, is incredible. Uh, and, and really, honestly, guys, Scooter hasn't changed really much at all. Uh, which probably 
what makes him a great writer. You know, makes him funny and fresh and always writes good stuff. But, uh, again, like I said, I've been, I've been a lot of different, a lot of times I swear this is the truth. I don't know if I'm talking too much, but a lot of times I'll look at ESPN classics and I'll see me somewhere like from 25 or 30 years ago. I'm like, it's like going back in time. I'm like, Man, there I'm, I'm sitting behind the bench there at the Villanova Georgetown game. Behind the Villanova bench, I see me. God, I mean, look how young I was, man. Look at that sports club. My God, you actually wore that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was in in the press building in Atlanta, downtown Atlanta, when the bomb went off outside the Olympics. When the bomb went off, uh, I remember running outside. And, and there's bodies all over the place, and I'm, I must, I'm just like running and talking, running because I know the police are going to shut it down in a hurry. Um, you know, people in shrapnel, being them just all being, I'm just talking to many people as I can. You know, places, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running back toward the, uh, the the press building, which is on the uh, on the fringe of Centennial Park, and and and. And I look up, and they've already closed getting back inside. So I think, God, i got, I got to get back inside the building. The lights are down. So I go in this parking garage, and I see this elevator. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get in it and ride up to where I end up at. So I, I go up, and I come out, and I'm walking to this kitchen of this bar they have in the building. Like, I'm in the kitchen. I walk out, and there's, like, one bartender. And he goes, where would you come from? I said, I'm a reporter. I came up the elevator. And I said, I, I said, I didn't, I didn't know where I was. I was trying to get back in the building. And I look out, I look out the, the door and there's my office like 30 feet away. I said, well, I've got to get in my office. He goes, okay. He goes, but, they're, but they're all over this building. So I'm walking in my office. I'm about five feet from my office and I heard, I heard this voice going, Hey, you stop. Turn around the police, the police officer goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm sorry. I, I, I was. I, I left my office looking for a bathroom. I couldn't find it, and uh, and and, and I, I, in this building, so I just walked back to my office. He goes, "Okay, we'll get back in there." Uh, so I got back to my office and worked all night, wrote stories that nobody else had. So, uh, like I said, I've been a lot of places, and and I've been to a lot of uh, a lot of places, a lot of games, uh, met a lot of crazy people. Uh, it's always the strange stuff you remember. The final four in Seattle, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there at, at, at halftime in the press room of the final four game, and I hear, I hear this voice behind me tell a guard, you don't know who I am? You don't, you don't know me? The guard is, I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am. And I turn around, it's Jack Nicholson. And he's, <laughs> And, and he's trying to get the pressure to get something to and uh, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> I looked at him, looked at the guard, and said, "Hey, I know him. He's good." <laughs> he they come up and get, "Thanks, man." He goes, "Who? There might be Nazis here, man. They don't let you in this place. They don't know what I want." I love that. I love that. Uh, yeah. The story that you wrote. In your career, that was the toughest to write, and give me one that you're the most proud of, Ron. Oh, the toughest one to write, you think? Ooh. What's a good question? Uh, that's a good, good question. Toughest one to write. Uh, let me come back to that one. The, the one 
the one I'm most proud of, well, there's a lot of them. Probably there was one I wrote uh, in Memphis, and it was about this. I was telling somebody just a bit about this story. Uh, there's this high school basketball player in Memphis named David Harris, the big, uh, big tall black kid, and his team won the state championship uh, as a junior year. And a couple months after the state championship, he was down in downtown Memphis with some uh, other his friends, and his friends decided they were you know, going to steal an old lady's purse, and they stole his old lady's purse, and she got a glimpse of him, and they, they ID'd him, and, and the, the, the judge, for some reason, like, put him in jail his senior year of high school. And, uh, <clears throat> but there was this junior college coach in Kansas who heard about him and, and talked to people, and decided that he was going to sign this guy out of out of jail, basically. And so basically, this he, this coach recruited this guy basically out of jail and and, and had to go to court to, and to, to vouch for him to get him out of there. And so I followed this kid. Now I did the story. Followed this kid to Kansas, uh, middle of Great Bend, Kansas, uh, cold as hell. How he just take him to this community, middle of nowhere, basically, and uh, kind of rescued his career. Uh, and it was a, it was a very unique story. Uh, and I really enjoyed doing that one. It was just different. Uh, I like the, I like the different stories, uh, whether they're intended or not. I mean, sometimes you get lucky. I mean, like the USA baseball team used to train in Memphis, the one with the Olympics when they had collegiate players. Uh, you know, so you know, I talked to guys like Jim Abbott and all these other guys who came through there. But they all USA baseball. They were every year they would have tryouts. You could try out for the team. anybody could try out for the, for the, for the team. Before they started training camp. So I go there, you know, and this is like in June in, in Memphis, Tennessee, actually Millington, which is north of Memphis, and that stadium there. It's like 9,000 degrees. And I, and I see this guy out in, in, in shortstop. He's like 40-something years old. He's wearing a flannel, out, a flannel baseball uniform. I'm thinking, this guy's crazy. He's looking dying. And I said, who is that guy? The guy goes, well, that's Lonnie Alton. I said, who is Lonnie Alton? He's just some guy, he's 40-something, he walked in here and wanted to try it out. I said, I said, I said, if you stay next door at the hotel where, you know, y'all, y'all try people? He goes, no, he's staying in the parking lot in his VW van. What? Said, oh, oh, that's perfect said, for you. I'll tell this just got a lot better. So afterwards, I, I go knock on his van, and he's in there, and he's doing his uniform sweating. And I look in his van, and it's like, you know, like, you know he's like, a bed in there and all kinds of stuff. So I, I told him, I, 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 I got to ask him, I said, you know, why even do this? He goes, well, he goes, I never really played baseball, but my mama was me a baseball player. And she died a few years ago, and, and, he, had, and he, he pointed at his dashboard, and he had a picture of her on, her, on his dashboard in a, in a frame. He goes, so I came here just to try out in her honor. I know we're going to make it, but I just want to try out in her honor. You know, it's, it's like stuff like that. You know, you just like you feel like you're lucky when you're going to something like that. Uh, there's another time where I, I covered Memphis and Louisville basketball uh, in Louisville, and so Memphis flies commercial, and they have to connect in in, in Atlanta uh, on a Friday for Saturday game. When they get to Atlanta, they find out that Louisville played Florida State the night before in Tallahassee, and they're connecting on the, on the same flight. To Louisville, and so you have Florida, you have Louisville and Memphis players, state players on the same same flight, 
And so I thought, this is awesome. This could be the greatest advance of all time. So I went up down, I went up down the, the plane and kind of wrote down what row, you know, each guy was in the seat. And so the next day, I mean, I, I talked about, you know, the, you know, the, some of the matchups. Uh, Memphis point guard Andre Turner, row seven, seat B, against Louisville's LeBradford Smith, row nine, seat B. I mean, I got to, I got to really, you know, talk about, you know, uh, you know, Memphis, Memphis seemed to have an advantage of baggage claim and boxed out to get its luggage first. <laughs> uh, it's like stuff like that falls in your lap. You just got to go with it. But yeah, I, I said, like I said, I've, I've been doing this a long time. I've been really lucky. Uh, I've been able to meet some great people. Uh, I never get, you know, I never get too. I mean, my, my kids, my kids have learned this about me. They, they've done it too. Uh, when they meet somebody that they, that the people, other people consider famous, you don't make a big deal of it, and, and, and you treat them normal. Uh, and they they appreciate that because they get fawned over enough athletes. That's right. Uh, uh, and uh, they they appreciate that. I mean, all, all my kids knew that. I mean, the first time my older son Carl met Carl met Shaquille O'Neal, uh, uh, I mean, Carl was probably like about ten, eleven years old. Meet Shaq at the SEC business meetings, and I said, "Carl, this is Shaquille O'Neal, Coach LSU. I mean, he just got drafted, blah blah blah." And he and, and Carl's, "Hey man, and that was it. Hey man, but then like you're Shaq, no. hey man, you know that was it. Uh, but uh, yeah, probably I get more excited meeting like you know rock stars or something like that, or or, or Jack Nicholson, you know, in a, in a press room laughing about that." Uh, just happened to be, you know, happened to be there. Uh, Where'd you yeah, get the nickname Mad Dog, Ron? I got the nickname Mad Dog when I was uh, when I was about ten years old. Of course, I started doing, doing summer stuff for the advocate. Then a newspaper about, about eleven or twelve years old. Then a newspaper, uh, a teenage newspaper in Baton Rouge called What's Happening. It was written by people at, at different schools. Uh, so I said, okay. I'm going to write a football column for him, but, you know, I'm going to call it Around the Gridiron. I said, you know, but I need, a, like, a tough name, a tough, tough name, like a nickname. What can I do? So I started going through mafia names, and I found Mad Dog. I thought, this is awesome. Around the Gridiron was Mad Dog Higgins. So I gave myself a nickname, and it stuck because the way I played basketball, this kind of tenacious and, all over the face, you know, just like a, like a, a raving mad dog. Uh, and so it, it kind of stuck through the years, you know. I mean, uh, the, the, the the Dean family, uh, Big Joe and Little Joe, uh, Big Joe AD at uh, LSU, uh, they lived two streets in back of me. Uh, they became a surrogate family. Uh, I could imitate, Im- imitate Big Joe better than anybody. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, and in fact, i one time, uh, he died a few months ago. I love the guy. Uh, he was the basketball coach at Ole Miss, Ed Murphy. Ed said, listen, I want you to, I want you to come on my answering machine as Joe Dean, okay, and, and do an answering machine thing for me. So when people called it, it was Joe Dean. So I said, okay. So uh, I, did, I did that for myself. Uh, it went something like this. I said, hey, this is Joe Dean. Ed Murphy's not in right now. He's out getting that backboard eating rebounder he wanted Get, leave a name a message and maybe he'll get back to you. Until then, it's string music. 
in Oxford, Mississippi. And so I did that for him. <laughs> and, and so Murphy called me about it about a week later. He goes, that is so great. He goes, he goes Lou Henson called me. The, uh, Murphy worked for one thing. He goes, the Illinois coach. He also just for some days. Lou Henson called me. He, he said, Murph, how the hell did you get Joe Dean to do an answer machine for you? So, uh, but but Joe Dean, that family, they they kind of took me in. Uh, and, and Big Joe used to always say, I knew Matt Dog when he was just a pup. Uh, and, uh, and uh, of course, I went to Big Joe's basketball camp in, in Baton Rouge before it went to uh, Mississippi, where it's been all these years. And uh, those were some great times, too. Uh, we had a, a, a tremendous amount of fun at the basketball the, the original Jodine basketball camp was called Lakeside Oaks Basketball Camp. It was at the, uh, this old fishing camp in Baton Rouge, way out in, in Perkins Road. It's not way out anymore, but back then it was way out. And uh, it was the, uh, we all slept in one big bunkhouse. Had a, there's a big fan that was at no air conditioning in Baton Rouge in the summer. The, the, they had outside courts, concrete courts. No, no, and imagine how hot it was. But we had some of the greatest times there I mean, and the, some of the greatest laughs. Um, we had people there. Uh, we had Whip Sanderson was a counselor there one year, coached Alabama. Uh, uh, Apple Sanders, who was a, a leading leader down in, uh, in that LSU history, uh, he was there. You know, he, he played with Maravich's, uh, Maravich's senior year. Uh, and Apple was this like 6'7, 240 guy. And, and so he, one day he's teaching us to re, you know, re, he's at the rebounding station. He's teaching us rebound. He goes, okay. Today we're going to how to offensive rebound, especially when somebody else has position on you. He goes, okay, Ron, come stand here. Stand here. I said, okay. He goes, now, I'm, this is what you do when you're behind somebody. He goes, okay, this. let me get behind you. He goes, okay, okay. What you do is, he goes, if you're behind somebody like Ron, you put your right foot on his foot when he did. He goes, and then you lean into his knee. Now, he is either going to tear knee ligaments or he's going to move. Okay, everybody working out. Let's go. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, I love that. One night, we never had a, a, a black camper there until my last couple of years. Uh, but my last couple, the, the first one we ever had was Calvin Nat. Uh, Calvin Nat uh, from the, uh, played in Northeast Louisiana. Was an All American from the, from the Riddle, Louisiana, with the Northeast. Played in the pros for a long time. But Calvin, when he came to camp, was as big as he was when he, when he, was, when he was a pro. He was like 6'8 and like 235. And just, we'd never seen anything like Calvin. I mean, because we never seen anything that ripped. I asked Calvin when that's a Calvin. I mean, how much do you work out? He goes, oh, I just eat a lot, man. Oh, I love that. I just eat a lot. I mean, I eat a lot, Ron, and I yeah. don't look like what he did. And so the first night he's there, okay. Now this is this is a late, like just past nineteen seventy seventy one. This is a camp full of white guys who basically have contests to see if they can run up and jump and touch the rim. Okay, hey, did you touch the rim? Yeah, I touched the rim. Awesome. First night we're there. I'm playing the game with Calvin. I'll throw him a pass off the break. He goes up and he goes up and just slams the crap out of the ball. Just dunks, wham. And play stop on two courts. Like, did you see that? Did, did you see that? Did you did you see what he just did? And of course, Mr. Dean, Calvin, come here, son. Calvin, come here. Calvin, son, love the stuff. Reno loved it, loved it. Now, Calvin, this is a this is a teaching camp. 
the next time laid the ball off the banking board. <laughs> Calvin goes, yes, too, Mr. Dean. For the rest of the camp, the rest of the camp, Calvin would be like three feet over the rim. He laid in and looked at Mr. Dean. And, 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 and just, good job, Calvin, good job. Yeah, yeah. So we had a lot of good times at, at basketball camp. But, uh, again, uh, I got to grow up at a time with a, a a lot of good people around me. Uh, even after my dad died, I said the deans kind of really helped me and took me in and uh, kind of mentored me. And uh, you know, and uh, I just kept playing basketball and, and uh, you know, overcame a lot of odds doing that. As far as uh, economically, we, after my dad died, we didn't have the most money in the world, so I knew I had to get a scholarship somewhere. Uh, so I ended up getting one in, in uh, to Angelina College in Lufkin, Texas. And, uh, where I met a whole new cast of characters. Uh, I played my best year of basketball there before I had, then I hurt my knee and I, I played in the game and, um, rehabbed it, but, but I had a bunch of scholarship offers and it disappeared. Uh, that's the way it goes. But Angelina was great in itself because I met, I had roommates and like a whole different cast of characters. And this is, if I ever write a sports movie about basketball, this guy's going to beat it. His name was Gitas Crew. Gitas Crew from Deer Park, Texas, outside of outside of Houston. And Gitas Gitas's talent was he was able to pass gas anytime he wanted, anytime. <laughs> he could say, Gitas, Gitas, give me a, a long, sweet one. He doesn't give him like, ah. you know. But he also had uh, he had this. We call him the silent, deadly killers. And we and he was a weapon for us in the game. This would this, this and, and this would happen every game. Guy gets fouled on the foul line. Okay, referee's about to, referee's about to hand the uh, hands the guy the ball, and and Gius would be lined up high on the foul line, right next to the guy. And he used to ask the ref, "Hey, can I switch sides?" And he goes, "Yeah, go ahead." So Gius would walk right in front of him, and when he did, he would emit the Pepe Le Pew silent deadly killer. <laughs> and, and, and we watched. I mean, we watched the guy. We knew what happened. We watched the guy. He got take a couple dribbles, and all of a sudden, this look of horror can come on his face. Like, oh my god, what is that? And the guy would always miss the free throws. He was just. He just. Just the, the, the gas factor would get to him. Also, also late in games, like we were winning, and we kind of go to a four corners. You know, when everybody kind of spreads out, right? Uh, Jesus was our point guard. So what would happen is the guy would be hand-checking him and be right in his face, you know, right his, his, his head almost right in the beginning rear end. All of a sudden, we would see the guy just straighten up and just like, and go, like straight up like he just hit like a, like a wave of, of, of gas and hit him in his face. We knew what happened. Jesus would, Jesus would hit him, hit him with the, the silent deadly killer. The guy would straighten up. Jesus would drive by him and, and, and throw to one of us. We laid the ball in. Yeah, he just <laughs> Wrapping up our conversation here on the Rap Game Podcast with the legend himself, Ron Higgins. All right, brother. You, you got your new book out with you and Ross Dellinger, 100 Things LSU Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Was there anything in the book that you and Ross wrote that you didn't already know? Was there something that you actually learned writing this book? Well, there's a couple. Yeah, but I, I tell you, man, it's, I, I did a lot of the stuff on the, the history of the campus and uh, how the campus was 
built and stuff like that, I mean, and, and how it was formed. Uh, and it was some of the stuff was, was, was fascinating to me. I, I had no idea. Uh, you know, like the, the, the first, I mean, how, how did LSU get all these beautiful trees? And apparently when, when uh, they had one guy who was, but they hired him, he had no real plan as far as how to, you know, where to plant trees. If he thought, if he thought someplace needed a tree, he put a tree there. Just uh, random, just random. That place needs a tree, so I'll plant one there. Yeah, yeah. And he put a random like, and, and of course, LSU is this beautiful, camp, one of the beautiful campuses in in in, uh, in the SEC and the nation. Uh, and I found that I found that fascinating to me. There wasn't, as far as the sports stuff, there wasn't uh, very much things I didn't know already. I did I did enjoy the you know LSU. Of course, LSU at the end of nineteen oh seven season. Uh, LSU and Tulane couldn't agree on, on, on a set of rules to play a game. And uh, and so LSU, uh, the University of Havana had been looking for an American team to come play in Cuba. And so LSU took this offer to go play the University of Havana in Cuba. And he took a, you know, took a steamship over there, uh, showed up, crowd of 4,200, uh, and they played – the Savannah team that had, I mean, they had some, you know, uh, they recruited pretty well, put it that way. But uh, before the game, uh, LSU's quarterback, Doc Fenton, who was probably their first great player, was uh, looking at the the Cuban team over on the side of, of, of the field on warm-ups, and there's this one guy just drinking a, a ton of wine at a, at a uh, these big glass demijohns full of wine. He was like just drinking this wine. And Doc Fenton tells one of LSU's guard, he goes, listen, the first play of the game, hit that guy as hard as you can in his, in his stomach. And he did, and, and uh, Doc Fenton said, the big, the big guy spouted wine like an artesian well. We nearly had to swim out of there. And LSU won the game 56 nothing. Uh, but here, here's, here's the kicker. Uh, after they played that game, uh, they arranged the same game in, in Havana for money to make money. So LSU players made twenty five bucks each to play them in another game. Took money back. Of course, that was illegal, but you know what stays what happens in Havana stays in Havana. <laughs> so uh, that was some you know, and that's an interesting book. It has everything in here. It has mostly football stuff, but it still touches on basketball and some other sports. Uh, uh, some uh, gymnastics, Giddy Bro, uh, David Toms, uh, Alex Bregman, and, and uh, again, uh, the campus of LSU, how LSU was formed, its history, also some places to eat and drink your tired to stay in. Of course, I handled the eating, Ross handled the drinking. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I like the book, it turned out well. Uh, but again, it's, it's got a lot of different things in there. And, and if you know much about LSU, uh, it's a, a hundred chapters worth of stuff, and they're all uh, stories. And uh, I wrote most of the stuff that happened to old people, but I, I do I did have some some, some modern day stuff too. Uh, it's a good book. Uh, I think every LSU fan would like it. It gives you an overall history of all the people that you probably had thought you knew about, but you didn't know enough about them. Well, Ron, I've started reading it. It's a tremendous read so far, brother, and. Uh, 
Look, man, I appreciate you doing this. I know you're immensely busy as the editor of Tiger Rag, and uh, you got another book out and everything else that you have going on. But I always appreciate the time that you make for the weekly radio show, brother, and uh, making time for this podcast, my man. It's great, great stories. I appreciate you having me on. I'm really honored that you have me on. Thanks for thinking of me. That was Tiger Rag, editor, the man in charge of the Bibleville Issue Sports, the one and only Ron Higgins. He does have a new book out, co-authoring with Ross Dellinger. It's called A Hundred Things LSU Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Pick it up if you're a diehard LSU fan. Pick it up for one of your Tiger fans for this upcoming Christmas season. Or, heck, just pick it up for yourself. Know a little bit more about one of the better college football programs in the country. That's going to do it for this episode of the Rap Game Podcast. Appreciate you checking this out. Look, if you've missed any of the previous episodes of the Rap Game Podcast, just go to 1037thegame.com, click on the Rap Game Podcast, and you can check out all the previous episodes. Until next time, y'all be safe out there, be kind to one another. I'll talk to you then. Woo!